0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Ian Worthington for a conversation about King Philip II of Macedon, who is famous for a number of things, including being the father of Alexander the Great, Alexander III. Dr. Worthington is Professor of Ancient History in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University, based in Australia. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. He's author of Ptolemy I, King and Pharaoh of Egypt, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he's also author of Athens After Empire, a history from Alexander the Great to the Emperor Hadrian, which was also published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the call, Ian.
1: Thank you very much, thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: So as an initial question, Ian, to create sufficient background and context for the conversation today, can you uh, summarize who Philip II of Macedon was?
1: Well, as you said in your intro, he was the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, most people have heard about Alexander in some form or another, but uh, many people don't really know who his father was. That happened to be Philip II. Uh, and uh, it's always been my argument that without Philip there wouldn't have been an Alexander the Great. Uh, So Philip was king of Macedonia from 359 BC until he was assassinated in 336 BC and at that point his son Alexander who was then 20 years old took over the throne.
0: Okay, Um, can you uh, talk about what the the geopolitical environment would have been like in Macedon in the fourth century BCE?
1: Well before Philip came to uh, came to the throne, uh, Macedonia was uh, you could just call it a a political, an economic uh, to some extent a cultural backwater on on the periphery of the Greek world it was situated uh, north of Mount Olympus And in those days, of course, there were no tunnels through mountains. There were no sealed roads or anything like that. So if you wanted to travel from A to B, you had to walk. So unless you are uh, an an ambassador or a tradesman or someone like that, you wouldn't visit uh, Macedonia because you'd have to walk over Mount Olympus. So as a result, uh, Macedonia grew up almost in a a vacuum from uh, the rest of the Greeks south of Mount Olympus. Uh, and given its geographical locale, uh, it's surrounded by a number of different tribes on its borders. Uh, you have several, actually. The Illyrians, a very fierce warlike tribe to its northwest, the Peonians to the north, the Thracians to the east. And because of all of that, there are there a lot of uh, incursions into Macedonia. The uh, the, uh, the kingdom itself was very disunited. Uh, it was split into two by the Pindus mountain range. so those tribes living in the cantons west of the Pindus uh, were, were, were pretty much independent from the king who lived in the other half of Macedonia and so as a result there are all these different areas each one owing loyalty to the local chieftain not all of them united under, uh, under one king uh, in the capital at Pella um, somewhat similar if you like to, to say medieval France uh, where you have Paris and the king as the center of everything, but you go to northwest France, you go to southeast, etc., and it's as if you're going to a, another country uh, because you have individual counts, individual rulers there who are running their own show.
0: Okay. Can you describe, Ian, can you describe if there's a difference between Macedon and Macedonia? So is there is there a difference between Macedon and Macedonia, and can you also describe... Was there actually uh, different uh, territories that would have been considered under the the, the Macedon state at that point in time? Because you mentioned some of the different areas, I'm trying to understand. Was it you know was there a west? Was there an east? Etc.
1: Yeah. Um- the two terms are really are, are interchangeable. Uh, one is geographical. When you talk about Macedonia, you're talking about the geographical entity that is that kingdom. When you're talking about Macedonia, you're talking about the political entity. So it's still the same place. Uh, you're just talking. You're just describing it a different way. Uh, in terms of territory, uh, the Macedonia before Philip II was actually quite small. It was Philip who really turned. The kingdom into a superpower of the ancient world he he started going on if you like an absorbing spree where he, he started to encroach uh, on the territory of the surrounding tribes he started to take those areas over uh, then he turned his attention south of mount olympus and eventually he would conquer the greeks and add greece to 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 what was now a growing empire so by the time he died after a reign of 20 odd years Uh, it probably doubled or tripled the size of Macedonia, not to mention doubled or tripled its population. So it actually started off reasonably small, uh, and you could perhaps make a parallel with Rome that starts off small, it's just a city in Italy, and then slowly starts to expand, takes over the various uh, civilizations like the Samnites, the, the Etruscans, eventually all of Italy falls under Rome's sway, then it starts targeting outside of Italy, you know, Carthage, etc., other places in the Mediterranean, and then eventually Greece and the Near East. So, Macedonia is something similar to that. Thanks to Philip, uh, it became uh, the dominant power on the Greek mainland. It became the strongest economy. Uh, and it was Philip who also laid the plans to invade the Persian Empire. He never got to do that, of course, because he was killed, but it was his son Alexander who inherited that plan and brought it to such spectacular fruition.
0: Um, so I want to, uh, and we'll spend more time, obviously, in his adulthood and his career. And you highlighted some some things there uh, that he did during his uh, career. Um, sure. To to round out some things uh, in his early period of his life, uh, do scholars know uh, where he was born?
1: No, there's not an awful lot of information known uh, about Philip. Uh, we rely. Uh, on two uh, major literary sources, some archaeological stuff, things like that. We don't actually have any literary sources from Macedonia itself. Uh, So we have to to rely on Greek sources which of course are biased because the Greeks look down their noses at the Macedonians. Uh, So uh, where Philip was born, we're not so sure. He was probably born in about 383, 382 BC. Uh, We know who his father was, that was a, a king of Mintas. Of macedonia he had uh, three sons one of them was philip uh, philip's uh, two brothers were both kings before him uh, it was the one Perdiccas the third who was uh, killed in an invasion by this illyrian tribe i mentioned before to the northwest uh, when he was killed in 359 in battle that's that's what brought philip to the throne
0: okay um so how, how, what do scholars lean on to know some of this early stuff uh, leading up to his life? Because you mentioned his, his brothers, you mentioned his father. What, what do scholars lean on to know about the, the, these um, historical uh, people and events?
1: Um, well, as far as the literary sources are concerned, we, we've got uh, folks like Thucydides, uh, who was uh, writing, he was the great historian of, the, of Athens' Peloponnesian War Against Sparta, so he's writing in, in the late uh, 5th century uh, and he, uh, of course, Athens has a lot of dealings with Macedonia, so, so he's able to, to tell us information about these earlier kings. Uh, but as I said before, because Thucydides is Athenian, he's biased against uh, the Macedonians. Uh, we have uh, a lot of numismatic evidence, a lot of coins. Uh, so we know what, what some of these guys look like because they, they had their portraits put on coins. Uh, we have the the names put on coins, so so numismatic evidence, uh, archaeological evidence from from various excavations, and then the Greek literary sources. I mentioned Thucydides. Another one is Plutarch, uh, a famous biographer of the first century A.D. Uh, Plutarch wrote a series of lives of influential Greeks and Romans down to uh, down to his time, or, or rather down to the end of the Roman Republic, uh, and some of these people that he talks about had dealings with the Macedonians and so he brings that into his biographies as well. So although we, uh, it, it's not like today where you've, you've got newspapers, you've got, I know, Facebook, you've got all sorts of other things that you can, you can dive into and find, find out about things and actually put together a pretty coherent picture of something, um, we don't have that sort of thing, but we do have enough information to be able to say, well, we know more than just the gist of what happened, even if we can't fill in some of the blanks.
0: Okay, and he, so he becomes, you said, king after uh, one of his brothers die. die. His
1: brother Perdiccas III was is killed in battle, uh, and then there's, there's chaos at the time, because there's all sorts of problems affecting Macedonia. The heir to the throne, that's Perdiccas's son, is only a minor. We don't know how old he was, but we, he was obviously not old enough to succeed and rule in his own right. So that's when um, this this organ of the Constitution, what's called the Assembly, uh, dis- uh, which is composed of male Macedonians, decided that, hey, we've, we've got all sorts of problems. Our, our king's dead. The next in line to the throne is just a boy. So we need to have somebody ruling from, from the start who can get us out of this pickle. So they turned to the dead king's brother, uh, Philip. And so Philip was was never in line. Uh, to become king, but now he found himself king uh, when his brother was killed.
0: Okay. Um, Was anything uh, left in the archives regarding his mother? Do scholars know anything about his mother?
1: Yeah, her her name was Eurydice, uh, and that's about it. Uh, um, She was probably, um, obviously she was a a noble lady. She probably came from uh, a region of Macedonia, maybe uh, an area called Incestus in in Upper Macedonia to, to Macedonia's west. Um, but beyond that, you know, really, it's, it's just a name. Uh, so if you, if you wanted to, to make a, a fictional movie about Eurydice's life, uh, you could get away with anything, because apart from her name and probably where she comes from, we don't know anything else. We don't even know uh, when she died. Um, her husband, of course, Amintas III, Philip's father, married again, because uh, the kings, at least, were polygamists, Uh, And uh, and Amintas married again and had children with his second wife, but we don't know if if his first wife Eurydice, the mother of Philip, whether she remained in the palace, whether whether she got along with the second wife. We know nothing about that.
0: Okay, what languages, language or languages would um, Philip have known in his life? Well,
1: this is a tricky question because uh, Mm -hmm. it's a controversial area. Uh, it it gets to whether the Macedonians were were Greeks and Greek-speaking so the ethnicity issue comes into it here. Uh, I think it's it's 99.9% recurring certain that the Macedonians were Greek and Greek-speaking. We have uh, enough evidence uh, to suggest uh, that there was no Macedonian language. However, the Greeks south of Mount Olympus called the Macedonians barbarians. This was this had nothing to do with culture because um, artistically the Macedonians produced artworks which were just as great as anything a Greek or a Roman could do. Uh, but barbarian was used of anybody who didn't speak Greek. Because to the Greeks it sounded like the buying of sheep. They just couldn't understand the language. So hence barbaros, barbarian. Uh, so that would that would suggest that the Macedonians weren't greek speakers at all that they were speaking their own language which the greeks couldn't understand more likely uh it's been argued that the macedonians had a dialect and this would make sense because they've got all these different tribes living on their borders um some of them were speaking with that we know were speaking different languages like the thracians so it's probably not a surprise that Because of the the geographical locale, the fact that Macedonia is isolated beyond Mount Olympus, it's got all these different ethnicities living on its borders, it's not a surprise that maybe a dialect sprung up and that this was what the Greeks didn't understand, and that's different from a language. So Philip himself, um, like like his people, would have been Greek-speaking, he was well-educated, he would read Greek literature, Kings before him uh, would, uh, had a lot of contacts with uh, the Greeks south of Mount Olympus. A king called um, uh, Archelaus, for example, invited Euripides, uh, the great Euripides, the, the uh, tragic playwright, to go to Pella. And, and Euripides went there and wrote the Bacchae there, might even have died in Pella. And Philip himself, we know, uh, had close contacts with some of the Athenian orators. He was also a sponsor, a patron of the Academy, uh, which by then was under the headship of Speusippus, the uh, successor of Plato. So it's these sorts of things, you know, we never hear of interpreters. Macedonian names uh, are all Greek, toponyms are all Greek, the gods are all Greek ones. We, We have, despite an abundance of archaeological evidence, we've got nothing that's written in a language other than Greek. So when you start to cobble all these sorts of things together, uh, it, it, it it's almost impossible for anyone to argue that the Macedonians were not Greeks
0: okay so you mentioned uh, earlier a few things that occurred during his reign um, can you expand on um, his his reign
1: um, well he actually packed an awful lot in, in 20 years or so and uh, I mean I deal with this in another book called By the Spear, Philip II and Alexander the Great the rise and fall of the Macedonian Empire. Um, and Philip is an extraordinary individual because he just he, he came from nowhere. I mean if if his uh, brother um, Perdiccas uh, had never been killed in battle but had had a good long reign and allowed his his son, the, the one who was just a boy when he was killed, allowed his son to grow up and inherit the throne, we wouldn't know anything about Philip. we just know that he is a brother of of this king. Um, So Philip sort of comes from nowhere and just turns Macedonia around. I mean, as I said before, it was a a political, it was an economic backwater, uh, it was disunited, it was prone to incursions by by the neighboring tribes, and Philip just spent his reign changing all that. He he created this army, and it's this army that that allows Alexander to win the battles and, and sieges he does in Asia. Uh, he created this army almost from scratch that becomes the most, the most formidable fighting machine before the Roman Legion. It's got nearly 200 years of successes before finally the Romans topple it in battle uh, in uh, 197 BC against a different Philip, Philip V of Macedonia. Um, and so uh, this army uh, really becomes the backbone of the Macedonian state. It becomes the first professional army. Uh, with pay for office, with a promotion pathway and things like that. Uh, and then Philip turns to to revitalize the economy. He, he exploits the natural resources of Macedonia, especially the mines like never before. Produces a gold and silver currency that leaves everywhere else standing. It becomes the strongest in Europe. Uh, and, uh, as I say, he, he unites Macedonia. I mentioned before that there are all these separate regions, these cantons, that didn't owe allegiance to the king, uh, that were fighting amongst themselves. And, of course, with that sort of disunity, you could never have uh, economic, political, or, or any other type of stability. Well, Philip ends all that. He unites Macedonia. He centralizes the capital of power and then he starts from, from border protection to make sure his kingdom is never invaded again he starts expanding he expands, south, expands southwards into Greece uh, to the northwest, to the north, to the east, into Thrace uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, by the time he dies uh, he's, he's been spectacularly successful on the mainland almost all of it is now under his control, as far east as um, Byzantium uh, the modern Istanbul and he's all set to invade Asia. He's ready to invade Asia Minor when uh, he's cut down by the assassin's dagger. So it's a, it's an amazing story. And Philip himself uh, is is a charismatic individual. He's the sort of person I've always said about this. Who uh, his diplomacy is based on deceit. Uh, he will uh, Machiavelli would uh, you know would really appreciate him. Uh, is the sort of person that, that you would go out drinking with and at the end of the night, he'd excuse himself, he'd be out of the bathroom window and he'd leave you with a bill. But the following night, you would want to go out with him again. Um, uh, he was boisterous, he loved partying. Uh, he married seven times without ever divorcing a wife because as I mentioned earlier, the Macedonians or at least their kings were polygamists. Uh, and he's just this this really charismatic individual that uh, that with my work on Philip that, that I hope I've brought more into the center stage of Greek history because he's lived far too long in the shadow uh, of his more famous son, Alexander the Great.
0: Can you uh, take a moment, Ian, and expand on the, the relationship, the conflict between Macedon and the, uh, I, I presume it's the Al- Alcheminid Empire at that point in time during Philip's life?
1: In Persia, the Achaemenid Empire.
0: Yeah, 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 the Achaemenid Empire. Can you take a moment and share more about that background? Because it's come up a couple times in your answer that he was planning to um, uh, invade uh, the Achaemenid Empire. Can you share more about the background of the uh, the conflict between these two states?
1: Yeah, it's not... Um, that, that, that again is one of those questions that, that look really straightforward and interesting but are so difficult to answer because of the nature of the evidence. There's probably not conflict per se, it's just that the Persian Empire at this time of course stretched from uh, what is modern Turkey all the way to uh, to Pakistan and south to Egypt. Uh, and on the on the what, what is today turkey uh, in uh, in ancient times it was called asia minor there were a lot there were a lot of uh, greek city states in that part of asia minor so there were a lot of contacts already between the greeks who were living in asia minor and the greeks on the mainland and some of those would have come into contact with with um, with philip as well it's interesting uh, but th- they were they were living under the rule of the great king of persia and it's interesting that when Philip said uh, announced to the Greeks that, that he was that he wanted to invade Persia, uh, he sold it as what was called a Pan-Hellenic uh, idea, an all-Greek idea, because he said one of the reasons was to liberate these Greek cities of Asia Minor from Persian rule, to give them their independence back. So, so you know, th- there was that angle to work on. The Persian Empire was also was so vast that the, that it was divided into twenty satrapies or 20 regions if you like and each one was under the control of a satrap uh, a governor and and apart from levying troops and paying taxes to the great king the satrap was free to do whatever he wanted so some of them of course became very powerful they became very wealthy Um, some of them also wanted to try and uh, free themselves from the control of the great king and one of them um, a satrap actually had fled at one stage with his family to the Macedonian court. So uh, so Philip knew a lot. I mean, the Greeks knew a lot about what was going on in Persia. Uh, but, of course, the great era of conflict didn't really involve Macedonia. That goes back to the early 5th century BC, the Great Persian Wars, which is when the Persians invaded Greece and wreaked havoc all of them. This was the... The famous Battle of Thermopylae, for example, you know, the 300 Spartans versus about a billion Persians at, at the Pass of Thermopylae. Uh, so there also seems to have been a lot of cultural context between Persia and uh, Greece. Uh, Philip uh, instituted a, a school of royal pages. These are lads from the age of 14 to 18 who were trained in uh, at the Macedonian court they were they were if you like the uh the next line of military commanders and these royal pages uh, attended the king on campaign in the final year so when they're 18 and this was probably something that he picked up from persia as well so not so much conflict but there was a lot of interaction so why did he want to invade uh, persia the answer is probably because he needed the money persia was, was fabulously wealthy. There are all these stories that made their way across about how, how you know, the roads were paved in gold and all this sort of thing. Uh, and and by the end of his reign, Philip was probably in need of uh, liquid capital. The Macedonians practiced a rolling economy. That means they funded uh, the next campaign for the proceeds of the previous one. So although the king on paper was very wealthy, owned all the natural resources, didn't have a lot of liquid capital to fall back on. And so it's very likely that when he announced the invasion of Persia, it wasn't because of any conflict, it wasn't anything to do uh, with the Persians perhaps uh, planning to invade Greece again. Uh, it was probably for plunder.
0: Um, so you spoke a little bit about um, military planning and uh, uniting, the, un- uniting that, that area. Um, during his reign, Is there any key policies that he implemented from a governance perspective that scholars know about that you want to highlight?
1: Um, I think it's hard getting to this one because the only person who really knows what he's doing, why and when is Philip himself. And he didn't leave a diary. Uh, I mentioned before about how deceit was part of his diplomacy and And this is is how he always kept his enemies on the back foot. The Athenians, for example, uh, at that time in Greek history, were the most powerful city on the Greek mainland. They had a formidable navy. They had an an empire. uh, They had um, considerable financial resources. And they went to war with him twice. And on both occasions, they had no idea what he was doing. they never actually fought a battle with him until the very end, at the end of the Second War with him. Um, but but he, w- he would constantly keep them on the back foot. Uh, he would uh, he would send a letter to them, for example, saying that he wanted to be their friend. Uh, and then they would debate this and they would decide, OK, well, let's send a delegation up there to, to the capital and find out what's going on. And all of this was just to buy time so that he could invade somewhere else and the Athenian fleet wouldn't sail against him. Uh, So um, the the central policy, if you like, for Philip was protect my borders, expand my kingdom, but always keep the enemy guessing what I'm going to do and why.
0: Okay. Um, We'll we'll, we'll go back to sort of where he gets to eventually uh, in the later period of his life regarding his planning um, to invade. The, um, the Achaemenid uh, Empire. Uh, but before we get to the later period of his life, um, I wanna cover a few things before we get there. Uh, so you mentioned uh, his marriages. Uh, how many children is he known to have had? And do, you, do, do scholars know where the concept of polygamy came from in Macedon? Because I can't imagine that it was common um, in that in that particular part the the practice of polygamy so do scholars know why that practice seems to have arisen in uh, Macedon
1: okay well to answer the first part uh, first how many children did he have we don't know that's the easy answer uh, we know he, we, he had two sons uh, one was called Aridaeus who was a year older than Alexander uh, we know that he had at least two or three daughters, because they crop up later in history. But, but he had multiple affairs, uh, and, and I, I don't believe that, it, that he didn't have illegitimate children from them. So it's just impossible to track this. Um, Ptolemy, for example, who was one of Alexander's boyhood friends, uh, Ptolemy, who went on to found the Ptolemaic dynasty, uh, the longest ruling dynasty of Egypt in the Hellenistic period. Uh, Ptolemy, at, at one stage when he was king of Egypt, wanted to make a bid on the Macedonian throne. We're talking about three hundred eight now. We're talking about a long time uh, after Alexander's died, when when uh, Alexander's senior staff were at war with each other, trying to win bigger slices of the empire, and. Uh, And the reason why I bring Ptolemy in is is that he let it be known that he was actually a bastard son of Philip II. And nobody batted an eyelid. So was uh, was Ptolemy illegitimate? Probably not. But what he's trying to do is establish a connection with Philip uh, that he thinks will help him in his bid for the Macedonian throne. And talking about him being an illegitimate son, well, he can't talk about him being a legitimate one, but he can mention illegitimate and he gets away with it. So that means that Philip probably had a score of these, and we just don't know how many that is. Uh, as far as the... He um, was a bit of a lad, so I'm, I'm definitely certain that there would have been plenty out there. As far as the second question goes about polygamy, this is a really interesting one, uh, because, again, it's an indication that the Macedonians were uh, had different customs uh, and, and, and beliefs, shall we say, than the Greeks south of Mount Olympus. Uh, we know from the Athenians, for example, that, that, that they would have they thought polygamy was reprehensible. Uh, they thought that um, a legit, uh, the only legitimate children could come from uh, a, a husband and wife, and so they looked down their noses at this Macedonian practice. Uh, the Macedonians, uh, perhaps as a people, might not all have been polygamists. But we know that the kings were, and that often they married for political and diplomatic reasons. Um, Philip, as I mentioned, was married seven times. The first six times were all part of political and military alliances. So maybe uh, uh, the polygamy came about from the need to 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 make a to make a marital pact part of an alliance you are making with someone else. You know, if if you made Um, a treaty or something with a a foreign ruler or with a, a tribal chieftain, then one way of ensuring the longevity of that alliance was by marrying into the family. And it might well be that in the dim and distant past, this is how this practice started and it simply continued so it was accepted by the time of Philip, Alexander and his successors.
0: What's known about his physical build? Do scholars know how tall he was? Uh, what his weight was? Um, how it, it's a you know when you think about someone, it's an interesting you know it's an interesting thought. Um, he was obviously a military uh, leader. Do do scholars know how how uh, you know how much dexterity he had himself um, physically?
1: Um, it's it's a great question because we often we're often bamboozled by Hollywood movies. Mm. Uh, and you think of, and you see all these hulks, if you think of Oliver Stone's Alexander, where, uh, which came out, I think it was a 2003, 2004, it's a terrible movie, let's not get into mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Philip in that movie was played by Val Kilmer, uh, who's a big guy, what is he, about 6'2", and he's really, he's really well built. Um, in, a, in, in fact, Philip was, was actually quite slender, uh, wasn't very tall, and the reason why we know that is that we have his his armor from uh, from his tomb we also have his skeletal remains from his tomb and when you put that together he was about five foot three five four um, give or take alexander would probably have been the same you think of someone like alexander the great if this is somebody who uh, can can topple the persian empire and establish uh, an empire as far east as what the greeks called india then hey in a movie uh, we better get The Rock to play him, or or, or Schwarzenegger, uh, but no, quite quite the reverse. He wasn't very tall, and people didn't seem to be very tall anyway in those days. Uh, and and it's interesting that our ancient sources only comment on people's height or age, for that matter, when when it's odd. You know, we we hear about a, an Athenian general who lived uh, well into his 80s. But well, why do they tell us that? The implication might be that not everybody lived into their 80s. So this was the exception to the rule. We're told about people who are tall. Why do they tell us that? Maybe again, it's because people are small uh, and they're, they're commenting on, on on this particular person being atypical. So Philip, Alexander, these are not very tall people. They're actually quite slender people. Uh, Philip's... Um, Armor, as I said, his cuirass, his greaves, etc., are on display in the museum at Virginia, the modern uh, Hamlet of Vergina, and and they're displayed brilliantly because they're put on this this um, this mannequin, this, this black mannequin, if you like, in a display case, so that when you're looking at it with the spotlights on it, when you're looking at it, you don't see the mannequin, you just see the armor, uh, and and you can see that Philip was actually a petite uh, individual. Uh, in terms of uh, how you know dexterity, et cetera, well, what what's the what's the expression? Don't let the size fool you. Uh, the, these are tough guys. I mean, some, some of Alexander's successors are fighting tooth and nail when they're eighty. Uh, that that Illyrian chieftain that, that uh, defeated Perdiccas the third and killed him in battle was was an octogenarian. So the, these are tough people whose lives are spent fighting the the like the spartans in some respect macedonian boys were very early age are taught to hunt to ride to fight uh, and the royal family are not excluded here uh, so philip and alexander have had a lifetime of fighting and the macedonians were were expecting their kings to be warrior kings they expected them to lead from the front and philip and alexander always did and that's why philip was was badly um, wounded in many battles. Uh, By the time he died he'd lost an eye, Uh, he'd been wounded in his leg and and was limping for the rest of his life, he had other wounds uh, as well. So this is not somebody, just because somebody is 5'2 or 5'3 this is not somebody you want to take on uh, in a fist fight because he will get the better of you. And in fact if you remember the movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Black Knight scene in that, there's, there's, there's more, there was more of Philip missing than intact by the time he died.
0: Mm. So let's go to the later period of his life, Ian. Can you talk a little bit about what's known of the later period of his life, including where he got to with um, some of his military planning?
1: Um, if we're talking about the, the last few years of his reign, um, I think it, it's a case that, that, uh, that once he had um, conquered all the tribes uh, in, that, that surrounded Macedonia, once he had conquered Thrace as far east uh, as the Hellespont, and as well as the Greeks south of Mount Olympus, he's starting to turn to, to fresh fields, and as I said before, that's the Persian Empire was probably interested in moving across that. I don't think he intended to topple the thing. I don't think he intended to go as far as Alexander did. This was something Alexander uh, wanted to do to try to eclipse the exploits of his father, try to distance himself from all the great things that Philip had done. Because as I said earlier, without what Philip had done for Macedonia, its economy, and the army, then there would have been an Alexander uh, He would have been Alexander III, but he might not necessarily have been known in history as Alexander the Great. And I think Alexander himself knew this, and that's why he was trying to to eclipse the exploits of his father all the time. And what I call Philip's ghost constantly lived with him. So Philip's already turned attention then to Asia. This is gonna be his next grand plan. He's all set to go, uh, and then uh, literally on the eve of sailing, he's assassinated, and so he never get, he never gets to go over there.
0: Do scholars know who assassinated him and uh, why?
1: Okay, yeah. That's, okay, the, easy, the first part of the question is dead easy. It was one of his royal bodyguards, uh, a man by the name of Pausanias, the why now. Okay, well, there are two schools. One, of course, is conspiracy theory. And I actually buy into this. And that, and that is that, that um, Alexander and perhaps also his mother, Olympias, who was Philip's fourth wife, that they conspired to assassinate Philip because they were really concerned that the previous year, 337, Philip had married for the seventh time. And this was different. He'd married a Macedonian noble lady by the name of Cleopatra and apparently fallen in love with her. So as I said before, his previous six marriages were all for political and military reasons. Olympias' fourth marriage was part of that pattern. So Philip didn't marry her for love. And in fact, he couldn't stand the sight of her. He was always having a go at her and she was always um, bitching on about him to Alexander. So Olympias seems to have been very worried that if Philip and his new wife Cleopatra had a son that he might be preferred over Alexander because Olympias came from Epirus, which is uh, roughly the modern Albania. So she was not a full-blood Macedonian, which meant Alexander wasn't. And there were factions at court that didn't like him. And so Olympias seems to be really worried that, as I said, if Philip and Cleopatra had a son and Philip lived long enough, that this son might well inherit the throne and not her son Alexander. So there's, a, uh, there's uh, other things I could go into, but I know times against us. So there's the conspiracy theory. The, uh, the official reason that was put out was that Posanius, <coughs> excuse me, was one of Philip's jilted ex-lovers. Um, the, the Greeks didn't have the term homosexual or bisexual. Those are modern terms, but if we applied them to the ancient world, we can say that, that most were bisexual. Uh, that, so Philip had dalliances with women as well as with men. He seems to have dumped this guy, Pausanias for another man, just to compl- complicate things, who was also called Posenius. Uh And one day at, at Guy, the modern Virginia, Philip was celebrating in the theater there. Pausanias couldn't handle it anymore. He leapt out and stabbed him and killed Philip on the spot. So we know what happened and who did it. The why is up for grabs. But there is enough, I think, to implicate at least Olympias' and or Alexander in the plot to kill Philip uh, and um, as I said that's how Alexander becomes king
0: okay was was Alexander the third was he um, do, do, do you do scholars know if he was identified early on by his father as the heir was he heir, heir apparent or did something happen along the way where um, he was then selected by his father to Uh, eventually uh, succeed him
1: something did happen because as I said he wasn't the eldest son and eldest sons normally succeeded to the to power Uh, he had an elder brother called Aridaeus who was the son of of Philip's third wife uh, a lady from Thessaly called called Philean just for the heck of it Uh, and so Aridaeus was born a year ahead of Alexander so he was always going to be the successor But at some stage, Alexander becomes the heir. What happened? We don't know. Um, Plutarch tells us that Olympias poisoned Aridaeus. Uh, Now, there's just no way of corroborating that at all because we we don't have, you know, a diary from Olympias saying, you know, Tuesday, got up, decided to poison Aridaeus. Um, but something clearly did happen. Our sources talk about Aridaeus being mentally deficient in some way. So, could he, for example, have been riding a horse, because uh, there were no stirrups in those days, remember? Could he have been riding a horse, fell off it, and had some brain damage? Uh, could he have suffered from epilepsy, which the Macedonians wouldn't have known about, or couldn't couldn't diagnose and thought that he wasn't fit to rule? Olympias have poisoned him but instead of killing him caused, uh, caused some other um, um, health issue that led to Alexander being preferred over him what we can say for sure is that by the time Alexander is 14 15 or so he's definitely the heir to the throne but how he's how he's leapfrogged over his elder brother we don't know for sure
0: okay um, so At this point, uh, it's the completion of um, Philip's life. So at the end of the life, at the end of his life, what would the demarcation of Macedon have been to juxtapose it to when he started his reign?
1: Oh, oh, I think chalk and cheese, no question about it. As I said at the very start, uh, Macedonia didn't have a developed economy. Its natural resources were not exploited at all. Uh, It didn't have an army as such, Uh, it had a cavalry, but it didn't really have uh, an infantry. Um, The infantrymen were conscript farmers, so they were poorly trained, they didn't have uh, proper arms and armor. Uh, They could never hold off incursions from neighboring tribes. So there was no army, there was no economy, uh, there was no unity within the kingdom. Uh, The western half was always at odds with the eastern half, there was no centralization uh, of the uh, the capital of Pella. Uh, and it's not a surprise that when news reached the Greeks, that Philip's predecessor, this the III, had been killed in battle, uh, they just expected Macedonia just to spiral down and, and become nothing. Uh, so if you were betting man, for example, uh, at the time, and, uh, uh, on, and, and the bet was that Macedonia would be a superpower within 20 years, the odds would be billions to one. And yet Philip achieved those odds. By the time he died, uh, as I said before, he had united Macedonia, created a stable currency. Uh, He had ensured dynastic succession, uh, because very often in the past when a king died, there were pretenders to the throne. There was all sorts of of problems with the next king uh, taking over. Uh, He solved all those. As I said, a developed economy, strong coinage, um, formidable professional army, uh, always successful, conquered all the the neighboring tribes, conquered the Greeks, established an empire on the mainland, and was getting ready to invade Asia. There's no way that when he came to power in 359, if you said to anybody then that this is what it's going to be like in 20 years, they would have thought that you uh, that you were mad.
0: Okay, and I think you mentioned that at the start of the episode. Can can you describe like if it's on a map, the like the west north east south so by the end so by the end of his life what would Macedon inc- 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 encompass? think
1: about um, think about today um, all of the Balkans, uh, all of Greece uh, west to east so from um, from you know uh, uh, Albania, Croatia etc all the way across to what would be um, in- Istanbul. Okay. And then, oh, oh, and then, and then, and uh, then the Greek mainland, and then the Greeks as
0: well, Greece. Okay, closing question for you, Ian. Uh, you mentioned a movie earlier, and it got me thinking. When a historian watches a movie, it can probably be uh, gr- grading when you're when you're going through the narrative sometime because it's probably easy to say that's that's inaccurate, that's inaccurate, that's inaccurate. Is there a movie that comes to mind, and if, if I know I'm putting you on the spot, so if one doesn't come to mind, it's completely fine. Does, does a movie come to mind that when you watched it, you think that they really got it right with historical facts? And fictional, okay. like, a, like a, not, a, not a documentary, but an actual kind of a fictional type of movie that you watched, and you said, you know what, I think they, they really got that right. You mean to do with Philip and Alexander? No, and just um, any, any movie that comes to mind.
1: Uh, no, uh, because it, it would be a, a really boring movie uh, if everything was, was mm. factually accurate. Um, what, what I don't, um, I mean, if we can just get back to Philip and Alexander just for a second. Uh, I mean, mm. yeah, okay, I mean, um, what, what, I, what I often ask my students is if, uh, imagine uh, you have got a limitless budget, uh, who would you, uh, and you had to make a movie about Alexander, which also included Philip, who would you cast? Who uh, would you get to direct? What What would be your angle? Because, uh, you know, you, you don't have three movies like Lord of the Rings, you know, to tell the whole story. So you have to do one thing. And and there's a movie called Gladiator with Russell Crowe, which I think is fantastic. And the reason why mm-hmm. that works, I mean, that's historically inaccurate. I mean, Commodus didn't die like that at the end. Um, but, it, but, but it's a great movie because it works because it's got believable, credible actors, it's got a great script and great directing and those were all the things wrong with the Alexander movie is that the actors weren't credible, the script was lackluster uh, and it, was, it wasn't great acting uh, but as I said, I asked my students these, uh, the, uh, this one and they think it's easy then they sit down and they discover it's really, it would be really hard to do this uh, because as I mentioned before, Alexander, wasn't very tall. Uh, he was only uh, what 22 when he invaded Asia. He wasn't quite uh, 33 when he died. So you need to get, you need to have somebody who looks that age is credible, but also must have this incredible charisma that he was able to lead his men these thousands of miles against numeric numerically superior foes over frozen mountain passes, and they followed him. So. So, you know, no movie, I think, really can ever get it right. Uh, when it comes to grating, I understand that, but Hollywood's Hollywood. What what, what annoys me, what annoyed me about the Alexander movie was, was distorting fact. There was no need to. At the very beginning, for example, there's a battle scene, Battle of Galgamela. It looks as though Alexander's about to be beheaded there. But along comes Clytus and chops off uh, the... Uh, the Persian's arm, who's just about to slice off Alexander's head, well, that happened at a previous battle. You know, why distort things like that? That's what that's what gets to me. Is I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind the uh, you know the the odd historical inaccuracy or whatever. That's fine. Uh, there are inaccuracies in every movie. There's inaccuracies in Titanic. Uh, there's no movie that's a hundred percent historically accurate. But when you take something and deliberately Make it wrong. I wonder why I bother doing that when you could just as easily make it right and still and still have an effective scene.
0: Gladiator is my favorite movie. Oh, is it really? It actually is. Well, well
1: of yeah. course, it's got an Australian actor in it, so Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you see what I mean. I mean, every five minutes there was something wrong with that movie, but it worked. It worked because it, it was because Russell Crowe is not a pretty boy he's been around the block a few times so he he, he looks like uh, a guy who used to be in the Roman army and who is now forced to fight in gladiatorial combat you you don't want you don't want someone like a, a Matt Damon or a ben, ben Affleck or someone like that playing that type of character it wouldn't work
0: hmm. It's been great chatting with you today, Ian. You uh, really provided clear and cogent answers to a lot of questions in a short period of time. And I know over in Sydney, Australia, it's not, uh, it's it's fairly early right now. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge today.
1: I appreciate and thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it very much.
0: You're welcome. Again, everybody, the couple of books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Worthington wrote as examples Ptolemy the First, King and Pharaoh of Egypt. And the other one that I'd mentioned is Athens After Empire, a history from Alexander the Great to the Emperor Hadrian. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ian and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye bye.